December 2011. The Spider-Man Crawl Space Podcast is sponsored by MailOrderComics.com. They have today's comics at yesterday's prices. And on this episode, we're going to be talking to Peter David. So let's spotlight some of his spider work. One of his best and first works in comics was the Death of Gene DeWolf trade paperback. Now this trade collects Spectacular Spider-Man number 107 to 110. It also has the Senator follow-up in number 134 to 136. Now the cover price is 25 bucks. Mail order has it for just $15.49, which is 38% off the cover price. So check them out at mailordercomics.com. Welcome back, webheads, to our last show in 2011. We're ending on a bang with having writer Peter David on the show. Peter, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be here. You were my first comic celebrity we had on the show back in 2006, oh, so it's kind of so awkward. Sorry. Well, you know, the good <laughs> side is it's only uphill from there. <laughs> it's kind of awkward to say, but thanks for being my first, okay. I guess. <laughs> I hope you were wearing white. <laughs> well, you have some spider projects that came out this year. We're going to talk a bit about those three. The first is the Spider-Man Vault. Tell me a bit about how that project came about. Well, I was approached by a a packager called Becker Meyer to put together a book that would be a history of Spider-Man as told by someone who had some inside knowledge. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm hardly the main, even the main contributor to the world of Spider-Man, but you know, I was there for some interesting times in the wall crawlers. Um, and I worked with Bob Greenberger, Mm-hmm. Who uh, was a terrific help in research and in and in uh, helping to shape the, the tone and style of the book and writing sections. Um, and together we we did this volume that was uh, put out by Running Press, except for some mysterious reason that we're still a little bit fuzzy on. Uh, Running Press initially chose to release the book only through such you know highly trafficked areas for comic fans as Costco. <laughs> um, when people, so you had this people, yeah. you had this bizarre divide where <laughs> fans were paying through the nose to find it on eBay and in the meantime Costco in the meantime running press had stacks of the thing piled up in warehouses gathering dust. I assume it was because uh, they figured they would tie into the fourth Sam Raimi film which didn't actually happen. When that was right. pushed back, lo and behold, they decided to push back the release of the book. Um, but now, eventually, it has finally seen release and is getting you know, fairly good responses uh, through some of the more normal venues like Barnes & Noble and comic book stores. No doubt. I bought my copy from Amazon. So, yeah, it's available up there if you want to pick it up. Yep. What about the research? How did you how did you research all nearly 50 years of Spider-Man? Well, some of it, a good chunk of it, I already knew. Um, And fortunately enough, we live in the world of the Internet where research is extremely 
extremely facilitated. Uh, I I got uh, books on Spider-Man, of books written by various people who would be in the know, such as Stan Lee and John Romita. And I'm... Bob Greenberger is incredible when it comes to research. I mean, I don't know what what sources he used, but he's he's extremely formidable and has a his very own collection of comic book reference volumes that's probably unequaled. So right. together we were able to pretty much find whatever we needed to know. Now I know that Cy Winnie, he's a friend of the uh, my website from spidermancollector.net, had a bunch of pictures in the book. Yeah. Talk about dealing with his collection. How did you guys go about that? Well, um, a lot of the actual collection of the work was done by a guy at Becker Meyer. He was the one okay. who, who had most of the involvement. I basically put out a call, an open call on my website saying, Hi, are you a Spider-Man collector? Do you have you know, things that you would like to see photographed and presented in a in a Spider-Man book for which we will pay you absolutely nothing? Boy, you're in luck. <laughs> um, contact me, and lots of people did. Yeah, there you uh, go. There was also a guy in upstate Rochester who had a, a ton of material, and fortunately enough, he lived in Rochester, and so did my and so does my brother, who's hmm. a Wally, who's a photographer. So you know that was great. Oh, I go. said, "Hey, Wally, you know, want to do a job that will pay you not much?" And he <laughs> said, "Sure." And he went over and spent hours photographing tons of that guy's stuff. Oh wow! Yeah. At least buy him lunch. <laughs> Something. Um, did you did uh, you go to the SpidermanCollector.net website? Did you get use some images from there? Or I honestly don't recall doing so, but it's entirely possible okay. that the guy at uh, Becker Meyer did that. Okay. Uh, how now the book? Uh, it's called Spider-Man: The Vault, and it it basically recreates some items. Actually, it's from... called the Spider-Man Vault. Not to oh, the, sp- uh, the, re- the only reason I'm being precise <laughs> is that Spider-Man: yeah. The Vault could be misinterpreted as a oh, tie-in okay. with that that uh, Marvel Universe prison. So. Let's get to Spider-Man Vault. <laughs> you don't want that yeah. typhoid Mary in the cell next door. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I want people going, ooh, Spider-Man, the vault. Spider-Man was taken prisoner, and now let's lead a breakout. And, you know, let's, let's be clear. Okay, no problem. How, how did you recreate the collectibles in there? Because you, cool, you have a lot of cool stuff. Well, uh, that was a matter of getting things from whatever sources we could, up to including things from my own, uh, from my own collection. Uh, for instance, one of the collectibles we have in there is a Daily Bugle press pass. That was yeah. actually mine. It was something that I got. It was the ticket for the Marvel special screening of the very first Spider-Man movie. Hmm. Um, you know, so I have my own stuff. Other people had theirs, and it mostly involved me getting everything together, putting it into a box, and shipping it out to Becker Mayer. Uh, they're yeah. the ones with the actual re- uh, replications. This is something that they have an, a great deal of practice doing since they have put out a number of uh, vault books before. This is pretty much you know, right. their signature piece. Right. They have uh, What other vaults did they do? Did they do the Star Trek one? I think they, I've they seen that one. They did a Star Trek vault. They yeah. did a DC vault. Yeah. Um, they did a thing about uh, the Vaults King. No, I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> um but uh, yeah, yeah, G.I. I think I think they may have done a Transformers vault. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, you know, like that. Very cool. So they're they're pretty uh, experienced with this. Very nice. Now you've seen a lot of Spider-Man collect- Disney, which is a shame because the title oh, itself, yeah. the Walt Vault. 
the wall. The wall. Yeah, I think that would be cool. No doubt. And the the in researching this, you probably saw a lot of weird collectibles. What's the one I I always think of as the Spider-Man toilet paper. That's a weird one. Yeah, that was kind of out there. And also the Sin Eater Mini Mates. I think well, that was kind of new. That's a weird one too. Uh, <laughs> I have to admit, I am. I mean, on the one hand, I'm unbelievably flattered. On the other hand, it really <laughs> fractures me because when Jim Owsley first suggested the concept of the death of Gene DeWolf, and he didn't really know, he really didn't know much about the story other than he wanted Gene DeWolf to be killed off, and the rest of it was me. Right. Um, he wanted Spider-Man to have a dark and grim and gritty feel to it that the series had never really had before. He really wanted to, to apply that kind of, you know, street, you know, that dark street sensibility to it, which I like to think I accommodated. And mm-hmm. it just amuses the hell out of me that <laughs> 20 years ago, what was a, what was 20 years ago, a dark and grim and gritty and intense Spider-Man story is now a little toy collectible. Yeah, and I have a medicine who gunned down people at shotgun and nearly killed Betty Brant and, and all this <laughs> stuff is now a two inch mini made with interchangeable heads. That's <laughs> right, kids. And there's a shield agent in there for some damn reason. I don't know what's up with that. And here, now you too can have a mini made of Jean DeWolf, who last we saw of her was lying flat on her back with her chest blown open. Fun, fun, fun. Have fun, kids. Hey, kids, it's comics. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell? Hey, look, I went, you know, I still, I'm still a little bit torqued that they haven't done a Fallen Angel mini mate. You know, they yeah. have the whole Femme Fatale set. What's wrong with Fallen Angel? I, I just saw on a website uh, the, the other day that they're doing a pr- Professor Hulk from your, your, uh, oh, are they? As a mini mate. I just saw that too. Oh, okay. Why not? Oh, yeah. Is there, is there any any other weird collectibles that you've come across in doing the research for the book? Uh, if they were weird, they were in the book. Um, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, you know, my attitude is, hey, you want to see some weird collectibles? Go crack open the book. <laughs> there you go. The other project that you have coming that you had come out this year was the Spider-Man Edge of Time. Yes. Now, is this your first video game that you've written? No. No. Uh, the uh, first video game that I wrote was called Shadow Complex uh, okay. for Chair entertainment um so th- this uh, i i had some minor involvement in some other stuff i did development work on on video games that that didn't actually come to fruition um but this is certainly the most high profile uh, right. video game that i've ever worked on it was just it was just tremendously entertaining how did you get involved with this one they asked me i mean i'd love to tell you there that, you go i'd love to tell you that there's i mean, it's frustrating because people say things to me like, you know, how did you get involved doing this? How did you get involved, draw, you know, writing Dark Tower? And right. it's basically people call me or they write to me and they say, would you be interested in getting involved? I mean, I'd like to tell you there's some sort of, you know, sexy story involved, you know, but there's, there's really not. They contacted, the phone. Me. Yeah. they contacted me and particularly because this one was focusing so heavily on Spider-Man 2099. Apparently, they felt that the smart idea would be to go to the source, hmm, um, yeah. which would be me, since I created the character a few decades ago. Mm-hmm. And awesome. and they want they wanted someone who would have an ear for the dialogue, who would really know the 2099 universe, um, and and uh, they thought of me. And I, I think that uh, you know I'm, I'm very flattered by that, and I also happen to think that it was. 
kind of important because people tend to write, when they're writing different incarnations of Spider-Man, and they don't really know the characters, they might, mm-hmm. put, they might have the characters talk to similarly with each other. Right. And, what was going, and the thing that was going to drive this story was the differences between the two guys. And Miguel doesn't mm-hmm. really talk anything like Peter, and more to the point, he also doesn't react to situations in the same way that Peter does. And right. I guess they decided they wanted to have someone who they felt would really be able to nail those differences between the two. Now, what's it like to write a video game as opposed to like a comic? I mean, do you have to write more fight scenes in there or something, or something for the player to do, or are you the the scenes in between no. the action? I don't know. How does it work? Well, the things for the players to do are, think, are all designed by the game designers. Okay. As the writer, you will be you will say you know they enter this and these are the general things that need to be accomplished. But much mm-hmm. of that comes from the game designers. Uh, there were a number of set pieces that were already in place. Uh, they knew they were going to want to have things that that would happen here, and they knew they were going to want to have things that were going to happen there. Um, I was brought in and put in a room with uh, other with uh, a bunch of guys from Beanox and also a representative uh, from Activision um, to uh, work out, to hammer out um, the story to you know, all the main points. I mean, we knew right. we had to get from point A to point B, but we had to develop the story that was going to get them from point A to point B. Uh, not, not to mention develop the bosses, the enemies, you know, the, the specific nature of some of the things that were, he was going to be involved with. Um, the major story beats, the story elements, all these things were worked up in one massive, solid week of being locked in a conference room and just hammering all this stuff out. Um, I then would write the script, you know, which I did, and mm-hmm. there's all sorts of things that are necessary requirements of doing a video game, ranging from having to write what are called wild lines, you know, we need 10 different things for Spider-Man to say when he punches <laughs> out a guard. We oh, need nice. 15 things for Mary Jane to say when she's in an elevator that's, that's, you know, that's descending <laughs> downward rapidly and is going to cause her to fall to her death. You know, 15 <laughs> things other than, oh, crap, oh, God, I'm in an elevator falling to my death. You know. You know. <laughs> that's awesome. And um, there's also incredible time constraints. I mean, very yeah. specific. They would... For instance, even after I turned in the first draft of the script, I would get back emails that would say things like, okay, Peter, um, during this sequence, Spider-Man is running to the mutant lab, the mutations lab, and he's in conversation with Spider-Man 2099 during this. It's going to take him 30 seconds to run to the lab. <laughs> we need you to write a dialogue exchange of 30 seconds in length. Man. Not 28 <laughs> seconds, not 31 <laughs> seconds, 35 seconds is right out. They need 30 seconds. So there, it's, it's one thing when I'm scripting a comic book, I have a general idea of how many words I can comfortably get away with on mm-hmm. in a panel, you know, yeah. developed through long years of doing this. I have no idea how long it takes to say this stuff. So I would have to sit there and write dialogue and then read it aloud with a stopwatch. 
And if it ran 35 seconds, I had to go back in and trim it down. And if I trimmed it down and it was now 26 seconds, I needed to add a couple of words. Wow. That would drive me nuts. That would, that probably, <laughs> I can't imagine that. Well, you I know, <laughs> I, you know as, uh, in the words of Super Chicken, I knew that the job was dangerous when I took it. <laughs> now, are you any good at gaming? Because when I, I'm playing the game, I cannot make 2099 go down the, the shafts through the, the building very well. I'm hitting his head. I'm dying, etc. <laughs> um, I, I, am, I am better than some, worse than yeah. others. <laughs> the falling with the 2099 part, that's uh, beautiful, but man, I can't do it. Well, on the I, other I, hand, I've, <laughs> seen, I've seen gamers you know, manipulate yeah. this stuff. I mean, t- to a certain degree, it's it's a it's a learned it's a learned it's a learned yeah. skill. I mean, the first time I was playing Epic Mickey, it took mm-hmm. me a week to get to a a certain point in the game, and then we went up to visit my 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 sister and her husband and their kids, and her husband plays these games all the time, and we gave them a copy of Epic Mickey, and Randy proceeded to start playing the game. It took him half an hour to reach the point that it had taken me a week. <laughs> if you know aye, aye, aye. what, I yeah. mean, the, the, the average playing time on Epic Mickey was mm-hmm. 20 to 24 hours of game time. It took me 47. <laughs> See, so I have I'm, a one year. I'm having about yeah. the same, the same, you know, <laughs> learning curve exactly. when it comes to Spider-Man. Yeah, I have a one-year-old at home, so I, I've, my video game time is, is drastically reduced. It takes me almost years to finish a game sometimes. Ah, uh, well, if it's of any he, consequence, wait till the wait yeah. till the one-year-old is about two or three. Give it to him <laughs> or her, and she'll probably just blow right through it. There you go. Spidey's 299's falling is no problem. Yeah. Uh, um, what's it like to bring your your character back? If I'm if I'm correct, if memory serves right, the last time you wrote 299 was in the Captain Marvel book. Uh, was that- as you were saying, if memory serves, I was immediately running through my head. I'm thinking, I think <laughs> the last time I wrote Miguel was Captain Marvel. So when you said that, yeah. I'm going, yeah, that pretty much matches my recollection. Yeah, what's it like to bring him back? After- oh, it's great. It's great. I mean, it's, it's like visiting with an old friend. It really is. I mean, these characters just kind of knock around in my head, and it, it's funny because when I all of a sudden just start picking up and writing them, it's like muscle memory. It just all comes right back. Everything about the way Miguel talks and acts and about he, how he reacts to situations just just comes right back to me. Right. Is there any plans for a monthly book to bring that back with you? Writing? Yeah, not to my knowledge. Um, if they did it, I would be thrilled. If they wanted me to write it, I'd be ecstatic. Yeah. But I haven't I, I heard. Mean, I haven't heard anything about it. Uh, Although I'm if very we want, we can try and make it happen. Yes, kids, <laughs> it's planned. It's 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 going to definitely happen. So be sure to write to find folks at Marvel and just tell them I can't wait for the return of the Spider-Man 2099 comic. That'll work. well, they they've tried several times and it hasn't stuck without you. So I think you're the key. Oh, is that you know, it? He was, he's, it he was in the that it hasn't stuck because most <laughs> books are, are, you know, that aren't core Marvel titles are struggling. It's it's all me. Thanks. I, I think it's... I, I, no, I didn't give me the pressure. <laughs> no, I mean, they did the Time Stream mini, and he was in the Exiles. Yep. And uh, I just... I, and then after the whole 2099 ended and mm-hmm. you left the book... Uh, he became like a god or something. I don't know. Anyway, and then the I world flood. That's read, a mess. <laughs> I actually didn't read the 2099 universe after I left 
because right. I was so torqued about the circumstances, namely that Marvel yeah. had fired Joey Cavalieri, who was the mm-hmm. heart and soul of the 2099 universe. I was not the only writer to say, Joey's gone, I'm gone. I just packed up and left, yeah. and so did a lot of the other writers. No um, and then they did some stuff after that that I paid no attention to, and apparently it was they a killed mess. off his mother, <laughs> which pissed me off, and they established yeah. that someone other than um, someone other than the character that I had intended was actually the goblin. So you know yeah. there was there was you know a good deal of annoyance in that regard. Right. Um, well, but um, the funny thing was was when they did a they did a a, a one shot to uh, to to finish off the 2099 universe to have to throw a conclusion. And I remember they contacted me and they said, okay. What did you hate about the end of 2099? Because we're going to fix all that. Yeah. And I told them exactly all the things that I hated, and they fixed all of it in like a couple of lines of dialogue in like two panels. It turned out Conchata was actually still alive, and that Father mm-hmm. Jennifer was actually the Goblin, which is what I had always intended. You know, all the stuff they fixed in two panels. So I was always I was always grateful for that. The other spider project you did this year was uh, walking in the Macy's Day Parade with the Spider-Man balloon. Well, I don't know did if your film... walking in the Macy's Day Parade really counts as a spider project, but okay. Yeah. Well, that's a huge friggin' balloon, dude. It certainly is. <laughs> that was a project. Did, did your phone ring again? I mean, no, no. Get, this, this one I actively pursued. Um, awesome. Every the last couple of years, I always remembered at the last moment and said. Hey, can I volunteer for pulling the Spider-Man balloon? And I was always too late. This time I remembered, fortunately enough, I think in, honey, what, September, October, August? Okay, my wife, my wife informed me that I remembered in August. And Very I contacted good. Marvel and said, I want to volunteer in plenty of time to pull the, to be one of the pullers on the Spider-Man balloon. And they said, okay, and they had me come in, and I had to fill out a form. And I had to fill out a form right there in the office. They couldn't fax it to me or anything. Mm-hmm. And it was the Macy's form, and I eventually then got a letter that said, okay, you're going to be pulling Spider-Man. And I went, yay. <laughs> um, now, what was your job, just to hold the rope, or what, what was? Well, I mean, it's, it's not just holding a rope. I mean, you're a, little, okay. you're a little more than a human anchor. I mean, really, <laughs> it's actually anchored more or less, by a very sturdy guy wire that's attached to a, a Jeep, essentially. If you oh. look very closely, you can see it. I never noticed that. Yeah, yeah. well, you don't generally because you're busy looking at the balloon. <laughs> and, um, but, so the Jeep basically prevents the thing from flying away. Mm. But okay. the job that you have is not just holding it, it's guiding it. Hmm. And this balloon is, is like, I don't know, it's it's something like 2,500 pounds when it's inflated. You know, it's 2,500 PSI or something like that. And basically what happens is you want 50 or 60 people, each of whom is pulling what is essentially 50 pounds of weight when you break it down over everybody. Mm -hmm. And your job is to guide this thing and make sure it doesn't, you know, bang into buildings, knock over lampposts, all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, And... And, and Wind probably is a factor too. You're constantly making adjustments. Yeah. Uh, they give you these devices which they call bones, um, and so you receive instruction on how to hold your bone. And I'm going, <laughs> I'm going. Well, I'm 55. I have some experience, <laughs> um, and some of them are white, and some of them are black, and. 
the woman says, there's no difference between white and black bones. And I'm going, well, that's not what I heard. But, you know, I really wish I'd call them something else. But they really are wow. kind of in the shape of the classic dog bone. So, you know, what are you going to okay. do? Yeah. Um, so there, and there's a guy whose job it is to to be, uh, he's, he's kind of like the sheriff, more or less. He's a pilot. And he's constantly calling out instructions in terms of letting out or reeling in rope on your bone. Um, <laughs> You're not making this up. <laughs> right hand to God. <laughs> right hand to God. Um, you have to, you know, you have to keep a firm grip on your bone, and you have to turn it one way or the other. Oh yeah! Wow. So you Can't become quite up. you become quite adept at you know manipulating your bone quickly. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, I mean there was some point because sometimes you have to get it down you have to get the balloon down fairly low in order to avoid things that are above you. I mean there was one right. point where I'm walking along and Spider Man's right hand is literally the fingers are on either side of my head. <laughs> yeah, this is one. Big wanton wow. ass balloon, and I'm pleased to say that we managed to keep him in control, um, and and he never banged into anything, including at Columbus Circle, where the crosswinds can be extremely vicious. But but fortunately enough, it was it was fairly mild. Yeah, and you had I loved the outfits that you the hand is that your title a, a spider balloon handler is that what it is yeah know. more or less a uh, handler okay I guess. Well, Tell me about the outfit. Cause you oh, had to wear no, the, red... the outfit was just smashing. Um, <laughs> you start with a blue jumpsuit. And mm-hmm. i got to tell you, I never really realized that jumpsuits can be an incredible pain in the ass to put on. I probably, <laughs> I probably dislocated my shoulder in order to get, get the thing on. They then give you this red Spider-Man bib, more or less. Nice. Um, it, it's kind of like an apron that covers front and back. Um, and th- that you wear over the front, um, and it's got it's basically got a webbed face with big white Spider-Man eyes, um, which you don't think about when you're wearing them. But I looked at pictures and realized that the placement of the Spider-Man eyes was <laughs> tragically unfortunate if you were a woman. <laughs> I mean, well, you know they're lying. Hey, buddy, my eyes are up here. No, they're not. Yeah, they're right there. They're yeah. right there. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I humbly think that Macy's may want to awesome. re- rethink the spidey, you know, the a, spidey bibs. Maybe uh, just a chest symbol. You know, uh, yeah, chest have the chest symbol, symbol yeah. on the back. If you want to yeah. have the eyes, put the eyes on the back. <laughs> um, but just it's, awesome. I'm looking because, like I said, you didn't realize when you were standing there. But when you're looking at the photo, I was then looking at photographs later. I'm going, ooh, <laughs> yeah, somebody many, didn't think that one through. How many miles? Uh, also, they give you a pair of gloves, okay, which is handy. Although on that particular day, it was uh, it was mild, so that was nice. And right. they give you red stocking caps. Very nice. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, so basically. Uh, you know, the thing is, as you're walking, the stocking cap tends to ride up a little bit on your head. So basically, <laughs> I look like a giant blue condom with a red tip. <laughs> handling your bone. Handling yes. my, <laughs> while handling my bone, yeah. yeah. How, how, how long is the parade? How, how long did you have to maneuver the balloon? Uh, the actual walk time was about an hour and a half. 
Okay. I walked well, 50 blocks. And I got to yeah. say, it, I mean, in terms of an aerobic workout, you yeah. can't really do better. From the waist down, you're walking <laughs> 50 blocks. Mm-hmm. From the waist up, you're wrestling with 50 pounds of weight as you're hauling the balloon. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, and, the, and the great thing is you, you're, you're operating on pure adrenaline because there are people, yeah. on, you know, there's people, there's mobs, mobs of people on either side. The, the crowds were at least 10 people deep, at least yeah. on either side, shouting spidey, you know, like, like mad people. Um, and everybody's shouting and waving and all that kind of thing. The adrenaline alone is <laughs> enough to get you the 50 blocks. I mean, when I turned onto 34th Street, I went, oh, my God, we're here already? I, I absolutely <laughs> couldn't believe it. Within half an hour after we after the whole thing was done, then my body started to let me know about it. Yeah. Then my legs are suddenly starting, are just suddenly, you know, raw nerves. <laughs> but uh, during it... During it, it's pure adrenaline. It's it's incredible. You know, I, I was just big. You know, one big walking endorphin. <laughs> and handling your bone, yeah. That, that, bone. that could be the new line, like 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 she said. It could be handling your bone finishes all sentences. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Twenty twelve. You going to do it again? I I may very well. Although what what yeah. I probably do this time. My family was at home watching it. Maybe this Maybe. time what we do is we check into a hotel and they can watch it from a decent vantage point. Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be cool. Um, let's tackle uh, message board questions. We've got a lot of them from around the really? world. Okay, uh, cool. We do. Um, okay. uh, Bertoni Beetle from Newport Ritchie, Florida, has a couple questions for you. He says, before Ned died, what was the plan for the future of the Betty, Flash, and Ned Triangle? Oh, my God. <laughs> what was the plan for the Betty, Flash, and Ned Triangle? Mm-hmm. I swear to God, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> because DeFalco was handling that book. We were mm-hmm. busy plot. I mean, when we would have our spider writer, the last time we had a spider writer get together, it was plotting out what the hell we were doing with the Hobgoblin, at which point we all decided that it was going to be Ned Leeds. You know, so much for that. Um <laughs> There, at no point were we really going over what was going to be happening with the individual characters beyond that. That was pretty much going to be between DeFalco and uh, and Owsley and whatever they worked out, or mostly whatever Tom was going to be working out. Um, so, you know, there was no group plan at that time for what was going to be happening with the, with, with the characters. I think things work very differently now, and I think every aspect mm-hmm. of the characters is, is planned out in group meetings. But at that time, we didn't, we didn't you know, micromanage it to quite that degree. Yeah. His other question is a Betty and Flash one. You wrote Betty and Flash for most of their early relationship in The Cult of Love and later explored them again in the Friendly Neighborhood run. What was your take on the relationship? Between Betty and Flash? Uh-huh. Um my my take my take was that they were two people who had you know learned to you know to respect each other and i think that they both knew that long term it was never really going to work but that you know that they were people who were just you know ultimately really good friends i don't think they really saw themselves as any kind of a serious long term couple right 
And his last question is, I know you came on to talk about the unmasking back in 2006, but now the changing of the guard has occurred. I'm curious about the behind-the-scenes mechanics that were going on at the time, knowing that one more day was coming. Yeah. What were you told you could and couldn't do, and just how much did you know at the time? Were there any original plans or stories oh, I during knew, the unmasking? I knew, I, knew, oh, I knew everything that was happening. I okay. mean, I mean, you know, did I know the absolute, you know, every single beat of the story? No, but I knew that Mephisto was going to be offering this. I knew that Aunt May was going to be dying. I knew that Peter Parker was going to be freaking out about it and didn't want her to die. And uh, that, uh, that Mephisto was going to offer them this deal. I knew that I thought I didn't like that at all. Um, because to my mind, you know, hey, everybody dies and be willing to throw away your, uh, your marriage in order to stop, you know, Aunt, you know, so, so that Aunt May might be able to live, you know, longer. Right. Um, to say nothing of the fact that my attitude is that you're making a deal with Mephisto so that Aunt May, you know, doesn't die from the, from the gunshot. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's Mephisto. She, she, (laughs) she gets up off the hospital bed. She says, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, she walks, she gets, you know, she gets a walk, you know, she gets released from the hospital, walks out and gets run over and killed by an ambulance. It's Mephisto. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I wasn't thrilled about it, but on the other hand, they don't pay me to make these decisions. So, Mm -hmm. okay. Not my call. Um, I mean, my job is to carry out the the instructions as best I can. No, that's issue. why. No. So, for Sorry. example, <laughs> I tried to lay a little bit of track work with it when I introduced the the Mysterio from Hell, mm, yeah. uh, and he made allusions to his uh, his superiors, and he made reference to that uh, his superiors had, were keeping a close eye on Peter Parker, and they had their own plans for him. That was me alluding to the upcoming events in One More Day. Nobody, of course, knew about it at the time, and I very much dabbed with the people. Then went back to Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man and went, aha, there's Peter David laying track work, because it was never really actually referenced anyplace else. But that's, you know, that's, that was my way of at least trying to acknowledge what was going to be coming up. This That topic of One More Day has pretty much divided the Spider-Fans. I mean, is there, there's no good way out, I don't think. I mean, No way out of what? No, no way out of uh, if if we want to sing. If the editorial wants a single Peter Parker, how do you do it and please everybody? I know you can't please everybody. You can't please everybody. I mean, we're, we're going. My, my attitude is if if yeah. if the mandate had come down to me, and mm-hmm. I was told that that we want to make Peter Parker single again, I wouldn't have waved a wand. I would I would not have been in favor of waving a wand and just saying it never happened. I, I don't understand the concept of it never happened because that means that all the life lessons and those kind of things that you may have learned during it don't mean anything. Yeah. Um, my attitude would have been, you know, okay, fine. Then either then either we have them get divorced or we kill off Mary Jane. That's it. Mm-hmm. And the argument would be, well, then forever after, Peter Parker is always going to be a divorcee or he's always going to be a widower, and that's true, but that reckons without the concept of fan turnover. Um, there, there are lots of stuff that you and I know about, that things that happened four, five, six years about, that there's plenty of Spider-Man fans who are new who have no freaking idea, 
I mean, you and yeah. I talk about the death of Gene DeWolf, and there's going to be fans out there who only know about the death of Gene DeWolf and Sin Eater because of buying a Minimate. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. true. Um, yeah. So time, as they say, heals all wounds. And four to five years from now, you're going to have an entire raft of Spider-Man fans who are unaware of the fact that he was ever married to someone named Mary Jane. Mm, 20 yeah. years from now, you have nobody who's going to remember it. Oh, really. the, old, the, old, the old ones like me when I'm in my 50s, yeah. I guess, or 60s, yeah. Yeah, and i got to tell you right now, if you're sitting there in your 60s and 70s going, <laughs> oh, I remember the days when Spider-Man was married, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Very true. Uh, other question, Michael Bailey from Fayetteville, Georgia. Yep. You worked in Marvel's direct sales department before your comic book writing career really took off. I did, yes, I did. If I'm remembering, remembering cor correctly, if I could talk, an installment of But I Digress, one of the things you did while you were a part of direct sales was tour comic book shops and talk with retailers. What was the weirdest experience you had out on the road? The weirdest experience I had out on the road when I would be talking to retailers and distributors and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's see. There were there were there were weird there were weird encounters. I mean, you know, there were you know, by and large they were pretty decent guys. Um, probably one of the things that was weird in retrospect was because I didn't realize it was weird that happened at the time. I was down visiting a a comic book shop in God I don't remember down in the south, uh, and I was there with and and um, they had a copy of a new comic that I had wanted to pick up. And it was called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I said, oh, I want, I, want to, I want to pick that up. That's great. And he said, oh, it's my last copy. Here, you can have it. <laughs> and he hands me a copy of one of the 3,000 original copies of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. And wow. I come home, and I come home, and I'm sitting at my office in Marvel Comics, and Carol Kalish walks by, and she sees me reading it, and she says, Carol was my boss at the time, and she says, where did you get that? And I said, oh, well, one of the retailers gave it to me. And she said, oh, my God, nobody nobody can find those. And I said, well, here it is, you know. Um, and I had no idea that I was holding in my hand a landmark issue. Wow. Um, but there were also sometimes when I would go to retailers, I would um, – um, I, when I go to retailers, I would work behind the register hmm. just to be able to, and the fans would have no <laughs> idea that I was a Marvel direct sales guy. And I'd talk to right. the fans and ask them, you know, incognito about what they were reading. Um, and, a, and a guy came up to me with a copy of, I think it was Electra Assassin or something like that. And he says, no, or, or I don't remember what it was, but it was a hard, it was like a, a, a bit firmer of a book in terms of the cover of, of the uh, cover stock. And he says to me, how high do you think this will go? And what he's referring to is the value, right? right. The resale value. And he hands me the book, and I chuck it, and I chuck it up in the air. <laughs> and it rebounds off the ceiling, and I catch it. And I say, it's not that high. <laughs> and without breaking it out, he says, okay, thanks. <laughs> He's probably like, that guy's a jerk. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> uh, let's see. Still a nerd is his handle. Washington, D.C. 
Uh, are there any plans, uh, or have you received any commission from Pocketbooks to do any future Star Trek novels based on the 2009 J.J. Abrams film and its upcoming sequel, and also about New Frontier, he wants to know? Uh, no, nobody's approached me about doing anything based upon the Abrams films. As for New Frontier, honest to God, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, Pocket said that they're going to decide about whether we're going to be doing more New Frontier based upon, of all things, the sales of the mass market paperback, uh, mm -hmm. which they're putting out with no advertising or promotion, as opposed to sales on the last couple of books, which they've put out without any advertising or promotion. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, pretty much your guess is as good as mine. Okay. The six 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 and a half is his title from the Meth Capital California. Good grief! So he's like <laughs> he's like what the the guy whose house adjoins the beast? I mean, what is that? I don't know. Uh, I have a nagging question from your awesome Mysterio arc. Who was the person spying on the Francis Clum Mysterio at the beginning of the first part? The speech patterns sounded like the Quentin Beck Mysterio, who also sounded like McGuire Beck, aka Jack O' Lantern Four. And the person who indirectly gave Clum the suit instead of Daniel Burkhart, but you implied that the Mysterio with Miss Arrow was a dead Quentin Beck. But Dan Slott has him alive again. I'm so confused. I bow to your spider wisdom. Quentin Beck That's, is alive again. Uh, I, that well is he? I don't I, think okay, we. Okay, boy, I'm behind. Um, <laughs> Mysterio's I, I don't remember. I'd have to I'd have to sit down and actually look at the first part so that it so I can kind of go like, oh yeah, okay. I mean, if I remember if I remember correctly, I think that I mean, there were three there were three Mysterios running around at the time. So I mean, I I cannot pull up in my mind the first the first part and say right off the top of my head who that was. If I read it, yeah. I'd know. If I right. look, if I had it in front of me, I'd be able to look. You know, if if if, I, if you're giving me about half an hour's prep time, I on this one I could have run out, I could have run up, pulled up my my original script. I could have you know found the book in my in my in my uh, in my archive, something like that. Right off the top of my head, I don't know. Right. Wheat cakes from Canada. Wheat cakes. Uh, wheat cakes is his handle. <laughs> Sure. Uh, Canada, you think it'd be flapjacks? Okay. <laughs> well, who knows? Uh, my question is regards to Jim Shooter. I've always been a fan of his, and I greatly enjoy reading his blog each week. He seems to be a bit of a decisive individual. Some are fans of his work and accomplishments. Others lament having to work with the man. But I was wondering what your opinion was of him. Was he easy to get along with, or in your opinion, was he as bad as some former Marvel staff have made him out to be? I think the answer to that, as with all things or as with most things, falls somewhere down the middle. Um, there were things that Jim was very, very good at. Um, handling people was not among them. Um, I mean, you know, so, so also Jim had a very, very clear idea of what he wanted a story to be, which, mm -hmm. and the way that he would approach a story was perfectly valid. The problem is, is that there are many ways to approach stories, each of which are perfectly valid, and Jim really didn't see it that way. It was his way or the highway, which was his prerogative since he was the editor-in-chief. It could, however, be an extremely stifling uh, situation under which to work if you were a creative individual. It didn't really allow you 
a tremendous amount of latitude. Um, he also had the people skills of an executioner. <laughs> um, wow! I mean, you know, the bottom, like you know, the bottom line is he got his ass fired uh, from Marvel Comics, and he will swear to his dying breath that he that that happened because he was fighting for creative rights. No. He got his ass fired because he pissed off his bosses, because he displayed the same attitude with them that he would display with the creators, which is, I'm the only one who knows how to do anything, and everybody else is an idiot. Hmm. Um, and you can do that with your subordinates. Doing it with, you know, and that's called being in charge. You do that with your bosses, and that's called being insubordinate. They fire your ass for that, <laughs> True. Uh, which is what they did to Jim. <laughs> um, and that, you know, was, and, and that's and that's really what it came down to. Yeah. Um, Jim had little to no support system beneath him, um, and when you don't have a support system beneath you and you don't have a support system above you, you got a problem. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, I still think he has great creative instincts. I think he can tell a really good story. But he has that, that fatal flaw. Um, and the thing is that there's a truism that everybody is the hero of their own narrative. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, yep. You talk to people who, whose marriages have broken up, and very rarely was it their fault. It was always that their that their spouse was at fault. You know, um, mm -hmm. if somebody gets fired from a company, it's because you know it was you know it, they they were the one who was righteous and true. Right. It's okay to be the hero of your own narrative. I get that. The problem is, is when everybody else is a villain. Mm, Everybody. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. the problem. Um, I'm, I mean, I know that I know that the old gag of you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they're not out to get you, you know. <laughs> right. But sometimes yep. they're really not. Sometimes you wind up getting yourself, and I think right. that's you know what that's to a very large degree is what Jim did. I mean, I thought that his rendering, John John Byrne did a satirical send up of. Starbrand over in uh, the pages of a book called, I think it was called DC Legends, in mm -hmm. which Starbrand was drawn to look just like Shooter, right down to the acne scars, which I thought was unbelievably cruel on, on Burns' yeah. part. Unbelievably cruel. On the other hand, he did have at one point the Starbrand parody version blow off his own foot. <laughs> now, like I said, I thought I thought making him look just like Shooter right down to the complexion was simply uncalled for. But there is something to be said for the shooting himself in the foot thing. Yeah. TNR 105 from Gotham City is his location, he says. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> he uh, wants to know your opinions of the Marvel films leading up to the Avengers. The Marvel films leading up to the Avengers. Okay, well let's yep. let's okay, well let's be specific. Um, Iron Man. Loved Iron Man. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Iron Man two. Didn't love it. Um, you've got 
you know, basically you've, you've got uh, this character spending three quarters of the film dying of cancer. Well, you know what? He's not going to die of cancer. He's Tony Stark. But it made right. the whole film an unbelievable bummer. So I was not thrilled about Iron Man 2. Um, Thor. Liked Thor a great deal. I thought there was a lot of fun stuff in there. Didn't need to be 3D. Absolutely no, I did not need to be 3D. I paid the extra three bucks for 3D or whatever. I agree. I, all I noticed was a snowflake in yeah. Asgard came forth the screen. I agree. Yeah. Um, Captain America, the absolute best. Loved mm. Captain America. Me too. Um... I thought, I thought that, I, I'm going to get you. I thought that okay. I thought that Cap. I mean, the thing that I loved about Captain America is that it is an absolute rarity in superhero films these days. A hero whose only angst is that he just wants to go out there and do good, and they're mm-hmm. not letting him. And once they let him go out there and do good, he's fine with that. You know, there is a purity of vision in Captain America that automatically makes you feel good and you don't even know why. And the reason is because he doesn't have any goddamn angst. He <laughs> knows who he is. He knows what yep. he wants to do. And when he gets the power to become Captain America, he doesn't spend half the film going, do I really deserve this? Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I worthy of this? You know, what about all this? What about all this? No. It's like, you know, thank God. Now I can go out there and serve my country. And, oh, they're not letting me. I feel so frustrated because they're not letting me do more good. Mm. You know, yep. and yes, I'll go out there and, and get war bonds and that kind of thing because it's what my country wants of me. But I want to do more to serve my country and help my fellow man. And he's able to carry, and you got to give him credit, in the screenplay and in the acting, they carried that off without him coming across like some sort of, you know, out-of-date Boy Scout. Yeah, no you know, doubt. I mean, they did was, a great it, job. It was beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Hulk. I thought, the, I thought the second Hulk movie was okay. I thought it was way better than the first. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, I mean, I, 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 really did like that. I really did like that one a lot. I thought it was much truer to the spirit of, of the comic book. It wasn't perfect, but I think that there's an inherent problem with doing a movie version of the Hulk, and that is the nature of the character. I don't know how you get around that, which is that you become aware of the fact that once Bruce Banner transforms into the Hulk, you're watching the adventures of a great big CGI character, and you mm-hmm. there's this kind of disconnect. You know, yeah. I don't care how much they make him look like the actor in, in as subtle ways as possible. You wear the fact that the actor is gone has been replaced by CGI. And I think that that still continues to be a dividing point for the audience. That once he transform, you know, the once he's, he's no longer uh, Norton or Bonner or something like that, he's a special effect. And there's only so much that people are going to invest in a special effect. Right. If he's not played by Andy Serkis, apparently. <laughs> um, because apparently Andy Serkis seems to be, you know, it doesn't matter whether he's a giant ape or a normal size ape oh, or, or I was a normal to think, hobbit yeah. or whatever. <laughs> you put Andy Serkis there and it's like, I'm so there. <laughs> but, but the thing is, at least he's a special effect from head to toe from the very beginning. 
transforming from a normal human into a special effect seems to leave the audience behind. Um, sometimes I think that the smart thing to do would be to portray the Hulk not as a giant CGI, but in the way that they they, way that they portrayed Mr. Hyde in uh, League of Ordinary uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, mm -hmm. because that was actually, for the most part, a giant puppet, and it was still huh. the same actor. Huh. So you were actually, a, I mean, which I didn't know. I just kind of assumed that he was all CGI, and yet he felt more realistic. But no, it was the actor manipulating a gigantic puppet that was simply supplemented by CGI. That I think that I think that if they were smart, they would go back to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and watch how they did Mr. Hyde there and adopt that over into the Hulk. He would look right. different than the Hulk ordinarily has looked in the past, but the Hulk has looked so many different ways. Why not? You know, yeah. give it a shot. That's what, that's that's what I would do. But um, so overall. Overall, I think it's been a fairly, ser you know, fairly strong series of movies, and I love the fact that it's culminating in the Avengers. Um, I mean, I, I, I personally think I, mean, I loved loved the scene in the in the trailer where where Captain America says to him, you know, big man in a fancy suit, take away that armor, and what are you? And he proceeds to say, and he's like, well, I'm a billionaire. I'm a billionaire. A playboy genius philanthropist. And it's like, <laughs> well, yeah. Actually, I mean, he no was doubt. pretty hot shit before he got the armor. No on. doubt. No <laughs> doubt. Know? Uh, late, Lady Spider uh, doesn't have a question, but she wanted to thank you for your Supergirl run, and if it wasn't for that book, along with Tom DeFalco's Spider-Girl, I probably wouldn't have gotten into comics. Really? Well, excellent. Thank you very much. Yep. Uh, Venom65437, who you talked to last time, uh, okay. You love his handle. <laughs> Any advice for changing his handle? I, I did. That was a rook. Yeah, you, you made fun of his six four five three eight. What you I said, was, you should change it two four six zero one so you could have Jean Valjean's <laughs> number. Exactly. You said wasn't one or two available? Or <laughs> I think oh, you said, that's right. Yeah. So we're yeah. Up, we're up to five digits. I mean, what the hell? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, let's see, Spidey Dude, the Lone Star State, he wanted to thank you for well, what mentioning... happened to Venom? Did we actually get his question in there? Oh, he had a uh, question of, should he change his handle? Oh, should he you, change you his made... handle? <laughs> what should yeah, it be? Well, now, his current handle is what? Venom65437 is his Okay, handle. he should change it to Anti-Venom6543. No, actually, <laughs> he should change it to Anti-Venom and run the numbers the other direction. Oh, that's very good. That's thank very you. Good. Thank you very much. Spidey, I'll, be, I'll be here all... Five minutes. Go ahead. Try the try the veal. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I usually say I usually say uh, tip the veal and try your waitress. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm too busy handling my bone. Yeah. Uh, the the Spidey Dude from the Lone Star State wanted to thank you for mentioning uh, him in one of your bite I digress columns. Okay. Uh, for the small contribution to the final issue of Friendly Neighborhood, to refresh your memory, I asked you if you. He, he did this on the podcast about four years ago. He wanted to see if there was going to be a confrontation between Jameson and Peter. You assumed oh, that JMS... Oh, was the one. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. yeah. A small contribution. That would have happened if it weren't for him. Because yeah. what happened was he made that... He, he asked that question. See, I knew that a fan had asked that, but right. I, I didn't remember the context. He, he asked, uh, for those people listening now, he said... Is there going to be some sort of final confrontation between Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson? 
And I, and my answer was, well, I would assume that that's going to actually happen in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, since Joe Straczynski was the one who started the whole thing with uh, Jonah Jameson suing Spider-Man. And the thing that I knew that the fans didn't know was that there was going to be a time limit on that because we were coming up towards uh, uh, one more day, and that was all going to go away anyway. It was all going to become moot. But nevertheless, I was, you know, I sat there going, there's real story potential there. And right. I went to the editor and I said, hey, look, does Joe actually have some sort of a resolution planned for the Jonah saving, the Jonah suing Spider-Man Peter Parker? And the editor came back and said, no. And I said, nothing? And he said, no, Joe doesn't really have anything worked out for that, which I guess they felt wasn't necessary because, you know, again, one more day. And I said, well, look, do you mind if I take a swing, no pun intended, at doing that in my last issue of Friendly Neighborhood? And he said, I said, because this is a, this is tremendous potential for a confrontation between Peter and Jonah. And even if within a few months it's not going to matter anyway, at least it'll matter now. And they said, go for it. And I said, okay. And I went in. So like I said, small contribution? No, that actually (laughs) shaped my last issue of Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. I would never have even thought to do that story because I was just operating on the assumption that Joe had something planned, which turned out... And it had one of the best last lines of a book with you effing Spider-Man. was awesome. (laughs) Which was the name of the book. That actually I picked up from the internet. The people were referring to it as (laughs) FNSM. And I yeah. looked at that, and I was going, F and Spider-Man. <laughs> and people were referring to it as F and Spider-Man. And I kind of went, I can see why. <laughs> and I wound up having the last line being, you know, and, and Spidey leaves a note for Jonah that basically talks about he just, he just uh, if I'm recording correctly, he just grabbed some wine that, or champagne or whatever that, Jonah, that they had out, and he took it for himself. And he signed it, you're FNSM. Which mm-hmm. he's done any number of times. He signs notes, FNSM, right. which we know stands for Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. And I had Jonas saying, I hate that FN Spider-Man. <laughs> and my editor came back and said, you realize there's no freaking way this is going to get through. It's going to get flagged by the powers that be. And they're going to say, very cute, nice try, now change it. And I said, let's give it a shot. What the hell? What have we got to lose? The worst that happens is we change it. And to my utter astonishment, (laughs) to my complete complete amazement, and I realize I'm using nothing but adjectives that were actually titles, but it can't be helped, um, (laughs) it it saw print. Yeah, it saw It freaking saw print. I loved it. Uh, let's see. Proto Goblin doesn't have a location. Out of all the comic work well, you've Proto done, Goblin, what... you can be anywhere you want. <laughs> Out of all the comic work you've done, what do you consider your best work? Out of all the comic book work I've done, I'm mm-hmm. extremely I'm extremely proud of Fallen Angel. It's probably some of my most you know personal work and sweeping in terms of the the uh, storylines and the subject matter that I've uh, I've handled. So probably I'm most proud of that. Um, I'm extremely proud of the Serapopro of Nothing limited series. Um, after that, you know, I guess uh, I also I'd also be very proud of the Atlantis Chronicles, which was a uh, limited series that I did for DC that was also very ambitious. 
And they collect you know, when you've got a 12 year run on the Hulk, you're not a schmuck. Yeah. Did they, I remember, but I digress, where you were asking them to reprint your Atlanta stuff. Have they ever trade, traded that? Uh, trade in Italy. Like that? Oh, in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, DC has spent so many years saying that nobody would buy it that I don't think they dare print it now. Because <laughs> if they put it out there and it sold huge copies, then somebody's head would roll yeah. for wasting so much time getting it into print. So. Proto's other question is, uh, any long-term plans on Friendly Neighborhood that never came to fruition before its cancellation in favor of ASM three times a month? ASM three times a month. Um, yeah. Let's see. I ha Yeah, I had long-term things I wanted to do with Flash. I mean, the problem was was that once I found out that, you know, there, there are long-term things I wanted to do with Flash, long-term things I wanted to do with, with, with Peter's uh, relationship, you know, the fact that they were, that, uh, that, that they were really, you know, tight friends now. I mean, yeah, I had all kinds of things worked out in broad strokes that I wanted to do, but I found out about six or seven issues in that yeah. we were pretty much unlimited, you know, that we were on borrowed time. Um, it, it is a little bit tricky to plot a book under those circumstances um, because I, mean, I, I did have some, some hindrance. For example, every single villain that I wanted to use, every time I said I wanted to use this villain or that villain, I was informed, no, that villain is being reserved for Amazing Spider-Man, or no, that villain is being reserved for Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. I mean, invariably. Invariably. Um, so I frequently didn't get to do the characters I wanted to do. Um, and then I, you know, and then we had the revelation, which uh, had a major impact because I still wanted to have Peter as a teacher, which suddenly became yeah. a whole big chore because suddenly he had gone public with his identity. So I had to come up with, you know, a way to make him continue to be able to still function as a teacher. And I had to examine all those ramifications. And then shortly after that, I found out that we were going to be doing Brand New Day and that everything was going to be pretty much shut down. And mm -hmm. I knew, so I knew that we were on borrowed time a year or so in advance. So it's a funny thing. When you know you're on borrowed time a year or so in advance, you don't, you know, you, as they say, you don't start reading a lot of continued stories. Yeah. Well, well, I wish so they would have. Your brain just starts to work in a different direction. Instead of, yeah. of thinking about long-term plans, you say like, "Okay, what can I do that's going to be entertaining within the short term?" Right. And I, I wish they would have put you on the rotation when they did the three times a month. They want. Because I, I, I want to start with a fresh group of writers. Yeah. I mean, starting the book, you had had to do the crossover with the other. Yeah. And then at the end of your book, you had to do the one more day, and you had just a short amount of time in there to tell your stories. So I, I wish think you, I, had, I, I think there were about two issues in there that I was yeah. able, that I was able to do in which I could pretty much do whatever the hell I wanted. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, there was the there was the one issue where that set uh, entirely from the point of view of this of this female blogger. That was a good one. I remember that one. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, I was I was able to pretty much do whatever I wanted with that one, um, and uh, yeah. So that actually that was, well, that was pretty much it. Everything else was me reacting to stuff that was going on around me that I that I had no control or real say in. And you had the the Uncle Ben from the alternate universe. That's yeah. storyline too. Yes, yeah, I, that was I, a good, yeah, I, yeah. I did that, and the reason I did that was I had I, I need to do like a two or three part story 
that would basically um, burn time um, while we were waiting for the re- for the reveal of his identity or something like that. I mean, you know, right. there was nothing I need. A lot of the stuff was me finding interesting, entertaining ways to have something to do that wasn't going to have a direct impact on the other events that were happening around him in the main titles. Right. That, I can't imagine coordinating that, but that, that must be chess piece move. <laughs> Insane. Well, again, Last, you know, super chicken. Yeah. Super chicken, exactly. Last question yeah. uh, before we wrap it up. Steve Rogers from New York City. No kidding. Uh, p- Seriously? <laughs> okay. Mr. Ro- uh, Mr. Rogers, Mr. David, as someone who has written for many va- varied mediums, do you have any thoughts on the Spider-Man musical, and how would you have approached Turn Off the Dark if you were approached to write it or even do a rewrite? Um. Well, let's see. I thought that there was a lot of positives. I mean, I saw. I have not seen the revised version. Mm-hmm. I did see. I, I should really get around to that. I did see. I did see it in its original incarnation. I thought that the um, first act had a lot of really positive stuff in there, and some incredible visual stuff. I thought the second act was a complete and utter train wreck. Mm. Um. I would have, I would have, so I, I don't know the details of what Roberto did in his rewrite. Um, I would probably have either made the geek chorus either more interesting or even simpler, just taking them out entirely. Um, I would have moved things around so that the, um, so, so that uh, the, the battle with the Green Goblin didn't, you know, climax in at, wasn't the first wasn't the first uh, uh, act climax. I mean, it's the Green Goblin. Mm-hmm. You don't kill him off at the end of Act One. Right. That's bizarre. <laughs> um, there, there are things that I would have done to make Arachne's story more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, because it, to certain and and uh, I, mean, I, I actually had at the time all sorts of things I wanted to do with her that would have made her more compelling and given greater coherency to the end because the end was, you know, the, the play didn't end so much as stop. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, you know what I mean? And that, that's, that's exactly. Yeah. That, that's a problem. Um, so I would have, I would have worked with the structure. I would have, uh, given, uh, Arachne a more clear, uh, character arc. I would have either changed or eliminated the geek chorus entirely. Uh, you know, so those are the things that I would have done. Uh, what about the Swiss Miss character? I've not seen the the, pl- the musical, but uh, Swiss that Miss, one's just... Swiss Miss has about thirty seconds of, sc- of, okay. of stage time. Um, <laughs> and I have to, I have to say, entertainingly enough, <laughs> when you see it in person, it really is a pretty kicking costume. Well, I mean, no. the whole concept of Swiss Miss is that when you see it in context, that she stems from the from the geek chorus. The notion mm. is that the geek chorus is is telling the story, and they're adding their own embellishments. And the female member of the geek chorus, who, by the way, was named Miss Arrow, which I was very pleased oh. about, um, nice. is taking issue with the fact that there are not an abundance of Spider-Man female villains. Mm. And Swiss Miss was her attempt at coming up with a Spider-Man villain. Now, I've got to say, um, <laughs> speaking as somebody, and it's easy to say, oh my God, what a stupid idea. 
But you're talking to somebody who has, throughout his 20-plus year career in comics, has attended any number of conventions where young fans come up to me with their concepts for superheroes. Yeah. And they're not much better than Swiss Miss. <laughs> in point of, and I say that with all love for the young fans. Uh, yeah. Some of them are, in fact, distinctively worse. And the whole concept of Swiss Miss was to capture that whole charming concept of young fans coming up with what they think are the single most brilliant villains ever in the creation of comic books. And yeah. I can tell you that I've had fans coming up to me wide-eyed showing me Captain Rubber Band or the human paperclip <laughs> and think that these are going to get right up there with the Punisher um, or yeah. Lobo as characters who are going to immediately seize the imagination of the fans. <laughs> And Christmas was really in that spirit. So if you see it in the context for which it was intended, you totally get it. Okay. You know? Gotcha. Uh, as we wrap up, talk about uh, any future 2012 plans with Spider-Man, that projects you have coming up? None whatsoever that I know of. But on the other hand, you have to understand that you're talking to someone whose life can change with a phone call. Exactly. I mean, yeah. I can sit here and say I have absolutely no plans for um, if for Spider-Man 2099, and then I get a call on Monday that says, hey, uh, would you like to jump in and be part of the team doing Amazing Spider-Man? Okay, sure. <laughs> well, we'd, we'd all love to see that. Uh, uh, talk about other non-Spider-Man-related stuff. X-Factor, obviously, coming out. Yep. X-Factor is continuing to chug along, and I'm... Uh, we're actually working up a major uh, promotional thing that we're going to be doing for X Factor that I'm, you know, really excited about. That has something, you know, and it's it's interesting because usually the only way that people promote things is there's going to be a mega crossover or somebody dies. Mm -hmm. And we're planning a major promotion concept that has nothing to do with crossovers or anyone dying. So we're really kind of excited about that. I can't mm -hmm. go into detail yet because it hasn't been, you know, hasn't been fully signed off on yet. But uh, you can look for that in 2012. Um, yep. I continue to write um, uh, 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 Stephen King's Dark Tower for Marvel Comics, and I'm having a you know, tremendous amount of fun for that. Um, uh, we're looking to do more Fallen Angel limited series from IDW, so you know, be looking for that. Um, in terms of other projects. There's things that I'm really simply not at liberty to discuss. Would that I could. Okay. Cool. Let's just, uh, although, I mean, for example, I would, like today, I put a, I'm putting finishing touches on a screenplay. That's not actually a Marvel screenplay, but it's 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 a screenplay for a major motion picture that I'm you know okay. really tremendously excited about. It's it's nice to actually write a screenplay for once. It's just not simply spec play. <laughs> gotcha. Well, Peter, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to the fans and uh, answering their questions. And you did great. And, and thumbs up on the book and the video game. I enjoy both of them. Thank you very much. I appreciate so. that. Thanks, and Peter. All, all righty. And Thanks, happy Peter. holidays. And Merry Christmas. And happy Chinooka and all that good stuff. And, and pull your bone in the new year. Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. That, that is actually good advice. Uh, you know, when, when, you, when you enter the new year, when, when strong winds are blowing, be sure you're handling your bone carefully. <laughs> it you all wouldn't want anything to bang into something. Else. <laughs>
<laughs> no, no, no. Or, <laughs> or yes. All right, I think that's a wrap. Okay. I appreciate it, Peter. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. You did great. Thanks, sir. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. And that's a wrap on this episode. Again, I want to thank Peter David for taking time to talk to the Crawl Space and answering the message board questions. Before we go, I want to give another shout-out to our sponsor, MailOrderComics.com. Another Peter David example is on the X-Factor Scar Tissue Hardcover. This one is spider-related, and guest stars Spider-Man, the Black Cat, and has a great appearance by Mayor Jameson. I think a lot of Spider-Fans overlook this one, but it's a great story, and the cover price is $24.99. Mail order has it for just $15.49, which is 38% off the cover price. So check them out at MailOrderComics.com. Thanks for listening, gang. I'm your host and webmaster, Brad Douglas, for the SpiderManCrawlspace.com.